you'd be forgiven for thinking that the world is a pretty unhappy place right now. Go on social media or switch on the news and you'll find stories about corruption in politics, conflict, injustice, there's unrest on the streets, there's plastic in our oceans. The world is literally on fire. And then of course there's COVID-19. We've all been locked down for the best part of a year right now, unable to hug our loved ones, unable to go to the supermarket without wearing a mask. The world has become a very frightening and tragic place. And it's very easy for us to let this this kind of barrage of negativity, of fear and things to be angry at, to affect our worldview and also our, our internal view of ourselves. We're frightened, we're tired, we're angry. And it's very easy for that to affect who we are and how we feel about life. But surely life is not about being angry. Surely life isn't about finding people to direct your unhappiness at, to seek out scapegoats for your your sense of deprivation. Surely there's more to it than that. And there is more to it than that. There's poetry, there's beauty. We are literally surrounded by things to be joyfully grateful for. Yet somehow it's so easy to be distracted. So how do we tune into those things that help us find joy? and also help us find peace in these difficult times? How can we nurture this sense of calm, of of happiness and fulfillment in ourselves without at the same time turning our back on the injustice that's going on and the work that needs to be done to make the world a better place? This is the Being Better podcast after all and, and being better is not just about living the good life but about being better as human beings, being more compassionate and doing our duty, our moral duty, to be the best that we can be for ourselves and for others as well. So I spoke to Trudy Goodman. Trudy uh, is a PhD. She's the founding teacher of Insight LA and is co-founder of the Institute of Meditation and Psychotherapy. She's one of the most senior Buddhist teachers in America and uh, is a contributing author to a range of books. I'm just going to read a couple here. Got the Clinical Handbook of Mindfulness, Compassion and Wisdom in Psychotherapy, uh, and Mindfulness and Psychotherapy. She is one of the leading authorities on, on meditation and mindfulness. And I wanted to speak to her about how we can balance a joyful, peaceful life where we are at peace and fulfilled with doing our duty to our brothers and sisters around the world? How can we nurture calm and peace and unity instead of anger and hatred and scapegoating? This is a really, truly wonderful conversation and I'm really grateful for Trudy who gave up her her time so generously to have this chat with me. And I hope that you'll enjoy it uh, too and take a sense of hope away from it at the end as well. Well, Trudy, thank you so much for giving up your time to have a conversation today. Um, I feel like right now the world is is very tired and under a lot of pressure. Um, there's a lot of division at the moment and just a, a lot of people are struggling right now. So I was wondering if we could maybe have a conversation just about how we can find a little bit of peace in the world and and share that, I guess, peace in ourselves and peace in each other. Um, Wonderful. Yeah, I think that's, um, 
I think that's really important right now, Chris, for all of us, probably all over the world, actually. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's um, we've all been stuck at home now for, well, pretty much a whole year. Um, you know, there's been a lot of um, division in the UK and America, you know, a lot of, um, uh, a lot of black and white people, um, you know, very divided, very tribal almost. And um, yeah, everything feels a, a little bit unsettled and we seem to be focused on all the things that are, are making us appear different rather than all the things that uh, we have in common. Um, and and I, I personally think we have a lot more in common than we do uh, that separates us. Um, but it's, it's very hard right now. I mean, we're all tired and angsty and angry. You know, what, what can we do to, to just find a little bit of peace and a bit of hope? Yeah, yeah. I think that people, yes, of course, we are. We're cranky, um, you know, cooped up. And also, well, yes, we have the vaccines, but when uh, and how? And it's sort of stretching into more, you know, if anybody had told us in March, we'd still be here now. I don't know what we would have done. It's a good thing we didn't know, but you know, just this way it's kind of stretching on with no end in sight is very stressful. Uh, and then that combined with George Floyd's murder and all the unrest that has happened since then, also all over the world, um, it's, it's, it's a difficult time. And people have been, I think, overusing this word unprecedented but it's the word that fits, you know, yeah. it really, we've never encountered such a kind of um, perfect storm of difficulties of climate change and this and that. And, you know, at least we have, some of us have a sense of new beginning in our country with a new administration. I don't know what can happen, but there is at least a little glimmer of hope about that. But what I think you and I can talk about today is just, um, how people can work with how we're working with our emotions, how we're working with our minds and how we're working with this situation that is completely difficult. I mean, just for example, uh, I have a 16 year old grandson and he has his birthday in March and he couldn't have a 16 year old birthday party and he's not going to be able to have a 17 year old birthday party. You know, that to me is just sort of a vivid illustration of the kinds of sacrifices that children are having to make young children trying to go to school on zoom and, you know, uh, and then the parents stressing about that, about the children, not to mention themselves and people being cooped up in situations where there may be an unhealthy relationships and, not even safe. It's it's really, really hard. And I say this not to make it harder to call to mind all the difficult things, but to actually bring in some self-compassion and some tenderness and realize, wow, look what we're coping with, all of us. It's really hard. And and then, you know, the burdens of COVID falling disproportionately on um, uh, people of color and unequal access to the vaccines. I mean, it's just so many stressful things that are going on. So, you know, I think uh, obviously I teach meditation. I was a psychotherapist in private practice for many, many years. I also worked in all kinds of clinical settings um, as a therapist. And so I focus on working with the mind and the heart 
that's kind of what I know. Um, I also know, I, I don't know how it is for you over there, but being able to get outside and walk in nature, you said there's greenery where you live. Yeah, that's absolutely. Important. You know, we are getting support from the trees and the sky and the air and the earth and, and to be able to, um, and I think this too is where the stance of meditation, whether you're a meditator or not, just that stance of stepping back yeah. and a, a more receptive mode helps us, I think, receive those gifts from the natural world that are soothing and comforting for our hearts. Uh, are you a meditator, Chris? I looked at your website briefly and saw some of the podcasts and great people yeah. you had. I try and meditate every day. Um, for the last maybe six months, I'm not sure how long, it's not really been as effective for me as it has been in the past. Um, so I'm trying new techniques. So I'm trying mantra meditation at the moment, and that seems to be um, having some good um, effects for me, good benefits, at least from a kind of um, uh, quietening of the mind point of view, because I have been, I must admit that all the troubles of the world that have been going on at the moment have been, um, I've been feeling them on a personal level. And I'm torn between that kind of balance of, of you know, switching off the news for my own well-being, but also having this kind of moral duty to be aware and to be plugged into what's going on in the world. And, and I know we're not supposed to take on all the burdens of the world because, you know, there's nothing we can do to make everything better. But at the same time, you know, I don't want to seem like I'm turning my back on it. And I think that's the difficult balance that people are facing at the moment or, or a lot of people are facing at the moment. You yeah, know? I think that's right. And I know I feel it for myself that um, it used to be that the first thing I would do in the morning would be meditate. I mean, maybe, maybe make a cup of tea or something, but, you know, meditate. And I'd say for the past at least four years, the first thing I do in the morning has been to reach for my phone and see, you know, what difficult thing is going on now in the world. And I know I'm not alone with, with this. And there's a habit, we call it doom scrolling. Yeah. I don't know. If you, yes. Yeah, and I absolutely. Think, <laughs> you know, the technology, it, just like what you're mentioning, it's such a double-edged thing because it offers us the chance to be together like this which is so necessary and important. And it also is, as we know, designed to capture our attention and hold it <laughs> as yeah. long as possible. Um, and did you see the documentary, The Social Dilemma? I did, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, yeah. and I, I think this is what we've, we've always known that, that social media was targeted this way. But it, it feeds into something that, you know, we, ha we have a thing or we used to have a thing in the UK called Crime Watch. And it was basically um, reconstructions of, of terrible crimes that had been committed. And the idea was that it would, they hoped it would trigger the memory of someone who might have seen something and they could help solve the crimes. But it became hugely addictive because people love real crime. And at the same time, people love to kind of see all the trouble that's going on in the world and the conflict and the drama of all of that. But at the same time, there's a sense that it's, you know, this addiction to us is to it is actually dragging us down. And, but yeah, we need to kind of somehow tune in somehow without it becoming um, this terrible, it's like junk food for the soul, I think almost yeah. to, 
to be yeah. so hooked on this stuff. Um, and See, certainly technology so, distills it into us, you know. It does. It, it rewards us, you know, yeah. for that. It offers us more of whatever we've clicked on. And, oh, you like that? Okay, try this. Yeah. And it just keeps going. And yeah. Um, and I know that this question of um, sort of titrating how much of the news we take in, one thing that I have done is that um, I won't watch it on television. Okay. I will only read it because it's not the same assault on all of my senses um, when I read something as when I actually see the pictures of it unfolding in real time on the screen. And I'm not talking about, you know, some national emergency like we had four weeks ago when our, um, the riots happened at the Capitol. Yes, that I watched, but you know, when just for the everyday news. So that's, that's something that is helpful to me. And also sometimes when I get the uh, news in my inbox, which is where I receive it, I don't have the news feed, you know, the notifications on my phone anymore. I've turned those off. Um, but when I get it into the inbox, sometimes I will just look at the headlines and not read the articles just to satisfy that sense of responsibility, yeah. uh, the ethical sense you were talking about to be aware and to know what's going on, but not to really um, dive into it and find out more um, like what's happening with crime watch, for example. Yeah. And, you know, I think that um, it's a time when the self-compassion practices, the self-soothing, whether it's breathing, whether it's, as I said, walking in nature, whether it's uh, repeating a mantra, it's okay, I'm okay right now. Uh, you know what, I'd be happy to do a little guided practice at some point if you'd like that. Yeah, that would um, be great. Yeah, during the podcast. But I think that being able to um, understand that also compassion, which is what you were talking about, that sensitivity of the heart that you have, uh, and that most of us at least start out in life with that. And if it hasn't been um, sort of abused out of us, we yeah. keep the uh, ability to, to be compassionate. And that that compassion is also not just about feeling with, you know, feeling with being willing to feel the suffering of the world. It carries within it the responsibility to do something, to take some action. And like you said, we can't solve all the problems of the world. I don't think I can solve any of the problems of the world actually, but just think if everybody did one thing one thing about something that's bothering them, one positive constructive thing, I mean, um, th that would ripple out across the world. That really would be world changing. There's that, there's that quote, isn't there? That's sort of, it's Gandhi misquoted where, where he said, you know, be the change that you want to see in the world. Yeah. I mean, is working on ourselves really enough? Is living the best life and the most moral and ethical life we can live, is that enough? Or do we need to be out on the streets protesting and out, you know, um, breaking down the, the unjust systems of society? You know, can, can we sort of just live a peaceful life, a life of loving kindness, if you like, and loving awareness? Um, is that enough 
Do you what do you think? I think that I think it's a beautiful thing if you can. I don't think everybody's called to be out in the streets or you know actively dismantling all the patterns of oppression in society. If somebody's living a loving, peaceful life, the implication is that they are treating each other, their families, everyone whose lives they touch with respect and kindness. And if everybody lived like that, we'd be in a utopia, wouldn't we? Yeah. (laughs) There was an article in The Onion. Um, I don't know if you've read The Onion, but it's the satirical newspaper. Yes, of course. course. um, I used to live in... Yeah, I used to live in New York and you would get the actual printed copy, which was amazing just to have this actual newspaper. But yeah. I remember there was an article and it was um, it was it was the, the one day that everybody in the world decided they would just throw out that plastic bottle in the trash rather than recycling it. Just that, you know, that one bottle. And yeah. it just totally tipped the world ecologically over on its kind of on its head uh, because it was just that one one thing. And I, I suppose it I suppose it does. And that's when you look at things like smoking or uh, seatbelts or things like this. It's all just one person making a change, but en masse, you know. It is, you know, and I take heart uh, for those listeners who are activists, you know, I, there's a book um, called Bury the Chains uh, by Adam Hotzog, which is about the abolition of slavery. Mm. And it talks about how one, person. I mean, there was an abolitionist movement, but one person, Thomas Clarkson, an Englishman, a Quaker, uh, at one point, you know, just picture him sort of taking off his hat and saying, enough is enough. We have to stop this. Now, remember at that time, the entire world economy was based on slavery. The idea of not having slaves, enslaved people rather, um, was so radical. It was unimaginable. And He rode that his horse 30,000 miles all over the English countryside, um, educating people about what it was like to be an enslaved person. And, you know, the rest is history, of course. Uh, And not that there isn't still, um, aren't still enslaved humans in the world, but it's no no longer legal. And I, I look at examples like that, Chris, and I think the onion... You know, they're not all wrong if we all do one positive thing. Um, And and what that thing is really has to take into account each of our innate talents and abilities and what kind of temperament we have. Um, If you're shy and introverted, you're probably not going to be going out on the streets and demonstrating, but you might write some letters uh, or some postcards each day about something you care about or, I don't know, um, donate some money or... Um, there are countless examples of, you know, help a neighbor, um, make some food for somebody. Uh, There's so many. And I I say this just because I remember taking a friend who was going through a really difficult passage in her life uh, to visit this uh, very grand uh, Tibetan Lama who had come to town. And I was offered a chance to have an audience with uh, this teacher. And so I brought my friend who was having a hard time because I really didn't need it at that time, the audience. And, but I wanted to meet, it was, you know, an honor. And she poured out her story to the teacher who listened very attentively and then leaned toward her and said, 
go do something good for somebody. That's all they said. And, but it was wise because that does, that's kind of service. It can be very personal and very small. It doesn't matter. I think what matters is the spirit in which it's offered. Is it loving? Um, you know, is it caring? And, and that, that really does help. It's one of the principles of the 12 step movement, you know, that yeah. you, you serve, you come to a meeting, you set up the chairs, you, um, you help make the coffee or tea, or I'm sure in England you have tea uh, rather than coffee. And we don't meet in person right now anyway, but do you know what I'm saying? That's yeah, one of absolutely. the foundations of that wonderful um, worldwide fellowship. Um, I mean, and, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I mean, um, Mary Oliver, one of my favorite lines from one of her poems, and it's probably a lot of people's favorite lines. She says, um, instructions for living a life, uh, pay attention, be astounded and tell about it. You know, and is that, is that, you know, when, when on the one hand, you know, you look to your left or you look to your right and the world seems to be on fire, but then you step into nature and the world is a beautiful place. Do you think... Yeah. You know, or even we, you know, we can't go out. So we're, we're encouraged to, or, you know, we might choose to look inside and find the beauty there and our connection to the universe in there. Is sharing that wonder enough of a good deed, do you think, to, to kind of help other people and to help the world? Or do you think it needs to be grander than that? No, I don't think it has to be grander than that. I do think that um, it really depends on the spirit of how we share the wonder, yeah. Chris. Obviously, if we're doing it in some sort of braggy spirit, like, whoa, I really had the most amazing experience. Listen to this. <laughs> you know, that's a different spirit of sharing. <laughs> but if it's not enhancing our own ego in some way, and we're just sort of filled with wonder or with, um, yeah, surprise or uh, awe and Yes. I mean, these emotions are contagious. I do believe the contagion theory of emotions. If somebody is joyful and full of light, we're gravitate, we gravitate toward that, right? Absolutely. If you walk in a room and somebody's really unhappy and very, you know, down and quiet and solemn, that pulls the attention too. Um, what parents said to me, you can only ever be as happy as your least happy child or something like that. Yeah. No, yeah. I don't think it has to be grand gestures. Do you? Do you, I mean, it, for much of it, I think it's about energy. So it's about the kind of energy that you give off. Like, like you were saying about the happy person in the room. And, you know, when I'm around people like that, I, I like you say, I do find it contagious. And you just want to, sometimes you want to be able to share that with the whole world because sometimes the whole world seems to be angry. They found an enemy to be kind of raging against. And often that enemy is not really an enemy at all. It's just someone who's different or from a different country or someone that you can blame your own unhappiness upon because that's who you've been told is your enemy. And sometimes I, th I think if we could just share that kind of more loving energy, that kind of more upbeat energy and not just believe what we're told to believe about you know, these are the people who are, it's their fault you're living in such a small house or you don't have everything you want, you know, and just have that kind of compassionate en energy towards people. It could be, you know, contagious, hopefully. Hopefully. And um, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I do think about the things that inspire us, you know, that that seeing just reading a beautiful poem like Mary Oliver's poem or hearing a beautiful piece of music. I think music is really important right now. Um, and these things wouldn't help energetically if, <laughs> if they didn't. And for example, I found a story that actually I'll share it with you all. That was what I wanted to go get. There was a poem and a story that I thought I would share. And I share it because when I, every time I read it, it touches my heart. And so I think sharing the things that do, that touch our hearts. Um, this is why you have your podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Right. This Absolutely. is what, this is your goodness into the world, Chris, right? I'm not well, saying it's your right. only goodness. I'm sure you do more, but I know about this. Well, I mean, I know I do this because it it certainly lifts me up. Having conversations like this um, fills me with a kind of very positive energy and it makes me feel hopeful um, that there are other people out there having these thoughts and these conversations and and leading the world, hopefully, in that direction as well. Yes, and, you know, one of the things that people are talking about, one of the expressions um, in the States these days is um, decolonizing our minds. In other words, just what you were talking about, not having to believe everything that we were told to believe, questioning uh, the things that we've been told, questioning the structures that we live in, questioning do organizations have to look like this, so top-down and hierarchical. I mean, for me, I'm old enough. This is one of the strange things about being old, Chris. I mean, in the 70s, we were going through all of this. In hippies, we were going through questioning all of this, not from the perspective of racial injustice, so much as maybe economic injustice, yeah. uh, you know, and, and other sexism and so on was more our, our focus back then. But, um, but these waves of cultural um, conflict and, and difficulty, they do carry that seed of possible discovery. When things are going along, we don't question, you know, yeah. but when they're tough, we have to stop and look and wonder. But yeah, I think you're fulfilling what Mary Oliver talked about. You're sharing, you know, that's what we're doing here, right? Well, I hope so. I mean, um, you talked then about when things go are tough, that's when we need to kind of find this strength to see, seek out this kind of this change and this this light, if you like. But personally, I know when things are tough, that's the time when I'm least likely to engage in that. You know, when, when things are going very well, that's when I'm, uh, you know, I find it very easy to meditate and, and be at peace and that kind of thing. But when, you know... Thing. when work is getting me down or I've been stuck indoors for too long and I haven't been outside, that's when I, you know, and I'm, I'm really kind of angry and angsty. That's when I kind of think, Oh, meditation, or what's the point, you know, or yeah, yeah. what's the point. It's interesting. Cause I'm almost the opposite. Like when things are going really, really well, I just, I don't feel so much the need to meditate, <laughs> but when I'm suffering, it's like, Oh boy, Oh boy. I need my practice. No, yeah. <laughs> So uh, some of us, yeah, are fair weather friends and some of us are foul weather friends. Um, but let me read you this story. The one that I said, this is just an example of how we can uplift each other. I found it touching. You'll see what you think. Um, it's not too long. No, that's but, right. Uh, it, it, uh, it was sent by a friend and I don't know who wrote it, but um, it's called uh, How to Dance in the Rain. Um, 
It was a busy morning, about 8.30, when an elderly gentleman in his 80s arrived to have stitches removed from his thumb. He said he was in a hurry as he had an appointment at 9 a.m. I took his vital signs, had him sit down, knowing it would be over an hour before somebody could see him. I saw him look at his watch and decided since I was not busy with another patient, obviously this was pre-COVID, I would evaluate his wound. On exam, it was well healed. So I talked to one of the doctors and got the needed supplies to remove his stitches and redress his wound. While taking care of his wound, I asked if he had another doctor's appointment this morning because he was in such a hurry. The gentleman told me no, that he needed to go to the nursing home to eat breakfast with his wife. I inquired as to her health. He told me that she had been there for a while and that she was a victim of Alzheimer's disease. As he talked, I asked if she would be upset if he was a bit late. He replied that she no longer knew who he was, that she had not recognized him for five years now. I was surprised and I said, and you still go every morning? even though she doesn't know who you are? He smiled, oh, this always makes me cry. He smiled as he patted my hand and he said, she doesn't know me, but I still know who she is. I had to hold back tears as he left. I had goosebumps on my arms and I thought, this is the kind of love I want in my life. So. I love that story. And stories like that are uplifting for my heart. I really think about them because I would be very capable of asking that question. You still go every morning, even though she doesn't know who you are. And his answer, um, to me, it's such an affirmation and uh, a tribute to the power of love and caring that's quite unconditional you know, to be able to love somebody who doesn't even remember your name anymore, but to still love. Is this not, is this not loving kindness? Is that not what this is about? It's about giving our love to the world, even if the world doesn't know who we are and doesn't feel our love. It's not because we want the world to recognize our love, but because we want to be loving people and we want to say to the world, we're ready to, to love you, you know, even if you're angry and you're shouting and, you know, you're, you might be a terrible person or, you know, have done terrible things. We still, we still love you. You know, that what you're saying um, actually brings tears to my eyes because, well, first of all, the tears are closer to the surface. I've noticed this year than last year, (laughs) you know, it's, I mean, it's really true. And the beauty is maybe more open-heartedness, but it's also, I think, a sign of um, just how much uh, sort of sadness there is in the world right now. But, but when you said, when you saw how this is actually a metaphor for how everybody who wants, everybody wants to be loved, <clears throat> excuse me, to be loved and to be recognized, but actually to be able to offer that love yeah. and to be able to recognize another, think again, what would our world be like if we knew how to recognize each other's loving hearts and gestures and notice and say something, you know, 
that's very beautiful what you said. So thank you for that. No, thank thank you. I mean, it's it's so hard sometimes, you know, and, and the world can make us hard, I think. You know, we we I spend far too long on Twitter, and Twitter has the kind of trending column down the down the right hand side. And it's always bad news. It's always people being angry about something or someone or some incident or, and just looking at that column makes me harden up. And I, I can feel that the anger rising. And I, I know I, I shouldn't feel like this. And I know I shouldn't let life make me hard, make me, you know, harden me like this. Yes. Harden your heart. Yeah. And, and we should, you know, there should be, there should be a trending column for the things that you know, are beautiful about life. You know, I know um, that you're a fan of poetry and and haiku, you know, Japanese haiku. And, um, you know, you, you regularly post pictures of birds uh, flying around outside your... I like your ducks. Home, you know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And we, we, but we need to seek that joy out and encourage other people to seek out the joy rather than the, the anger and the injustice. You know, seek out the joy in each other. You know, one of the... Sort of another thing you're pointing to that to me is one of the biggest mysteries. Um, I hope nurse neuroscientists understand this better, uh, or at least understand a solution to it. You know, we understand from the neuroscientists that we have this negativity bias of the brain that for our survival, the brain is wired to notice threats and dangers and angry people and uh, disasters and like that being fascinated with an accident, all those things. Um, we do know this. And we also know that people who have tried to found magazines, um, there was one called Ode, one called Yes, one called Hope. They generally don't do that well. Yeah. Uh, you know, people don't buy them actually. Uh, what, what to do about sort of, like you said on Twitter, the negativity bias run amok. Um, yeah. What to do about uh, social media and the clickbait that selects for the most rancorous, the most sort of the, the most base parts of humanity. Well, they're, they're uh, calling it the, amplified. they're calling it the, out, the outrage economy. Yes. You know, if you can get yes. people angry then you can drive clicks and you can sell adverts and all of this kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So we have to, I think, I think awareness, like you said at the beginning, awareness of this is extremely important. Awareness of how we are being manipulated by technology about how in some sense, all the news is fake, not really, but in a certain sense of, sort of that it's geared to capture our attention in certain ways. That's what I mean. I am a fan, a huge fan of um, a man named Tristan Harris, who you may or may not know of his work with the Center for Humane Technology. Yeah. He was the sort of the star of the social dilemma. And I, you know, it's, it's kind of like um, the example of Thomas Clarkson. I think of Tristan that way because I knew him before he was well-known and he was really like a lone voice crying out in the wilderness who would come to these tech conferences and, and try to explain to people, look, I was a design ethicist. I know how this is being designed. And it took a long time, but and people started to listen. And now he's talking to Congress people. He's talking, you know, he's really being listened yeah. to. And 
this work of just being aware of what are the influences on our consciousness and how are we participating in watering seeds of goodness and love within ourselves or watering the seeds of anger and disappointment and the wish for revenge or a scapegoat, I'm miserable, somebody should pay that kind of mind. Um, and I think it, the Vietnamese teacher Thich Nhat Hanh you know, talks about just which seeds are you going to water yeah. um, in your heart. And that's, that's important too. I think it requires though a, a certain sense of awareness that we are watering seeds, you know, and yeah. that there are seeds to be watered, you know. And I think yeah. the whole of modern society perhaps is, is kind of geared to distract us with external things, you know, bright lights and, you know, shock news and headlines and television and loud music. And not that I have anything against loud music because, um, but you know, the, the, I'm yes. just talking about all these kind of things that are encouraging us to look outside rather than be aware of what's going on inside. So if, if there's something we're unhappy with, it's not in here, it's out there, you know, and it's somebody's fault or it's because politicians are letting us down or because, you know, um, everything is corrupt. We're actually, you know, we'd be better off looking in here to say, you know, what is hurting me right now and how can I fix that first of all? Yeah, absolutely. And this is why I love mindfulness, actually. I really do. I love mindfulness because mindfulness is really, um, first of all, it anchors us in a sense of the body of physical presence, which is uh, incontrovertible. You know, our bodies don't lie. So it's good to know how it is for us um, in the body. Um, and it also helps us grow that awareness that we don't have to just believe all our thoughts but we can actually observe them and notice the patterns of our minds and how we perceive things and, and that we can do that internally. And we can also do that externally um, and be aware of the influences on our minds. And when you talk about which, you know, knowing how to water seeds, that's to me is how we learn. We learn what's happening with us. And we learn that, to that which we give attention, that's what grows stronger. And we do as human beings have this miraculous capacity to place our attention where we want. You know, we don't always feel we're in charge of ourselves that way because we're so used to being captured by our thoughts and kind of encapsulated in this thought world, which is actually quite lonely. But when we learn to observe them and just let them be part of what we're perceiving and not filter all of our experiences through the thinking mind, um, it does bring some freedom and a sense of stability and a sense of clarity. And with that comes, I think, a valuing of consciousness, of awareness, of our bodies, of our life, of ourselves. And that valuing that's a form of self-compassion or of loving kindness, you know, like you were saying. It's, um, it's amazing because for a long time, I, I wasn't aware of that. I wasn't aware that we could place our attention at, almost as a tool for making yes. ourselves feel better. And I felt like a real passive participant in my own life. Like I was just being dragged along and I had no say what was happening to me, no matter how hard I tried, um, things never seemed to go my way until I started looking inside and stopping listening to the thoughts in here 
and actually my, my the world around me changed as a, a result of that. I was able to make better decisions and act with more clarity and, and focus my attention on the, the things that were working for me rather than the things that were working against me. Um, well, that's huge. You changed your life. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, you know, too easily society is, is enables us to go along, just kind of trundle along um, without any con real control over what we're, you know, we're being fed information all the time. Um, you know, we can have a job that pays a, a comfortable salary, but, you know, probably not enough for us to be really happy and have a, a great extravagant life, but just enough to pay the bills and that kind of thing. You know, and it's geared a lot to keep us kind of in this melancholy, mediocre state. But if when we... you said melancholy and mediocre, I thought you were going to say matrix. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like matrix. I don't want to quite get into those kind of that almost conspiratorial yeah. thinking. But, uh, you know, it's, it's funny. It's like, you know, we, when we take ownership of, of life and ourselves, that's when life starts mm -hmm. to, to work for us and becomes much more beautiful and you know, the colors become brighter, the textures become more well-defined and everything become, you know, it comes to life almost. I think that's exactly right. And, and you're talking about when you're not so focused on following the externals, um, you know, then something can happen and you can begin to see, oh, here's where my suffering starts. Here's where I can stop it. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I can't stop it, but I can shift the focus of my attention so that it will ease and gradually it can stop. I mean, we know this and yeah, and it, it, it's not something you can figure out through your thoughts, is it? It's not, it's, it's belongs to another dimension of experience. I think I, it comes from, and I've observed this with your, your friends, Sharon Salzberg and um, Jack Cornfield, my own personal experiences, you have to reach a certain kind of crisis or a, a rock bottom almost from from which you you then kind of have this awakening almost so you, you either fall into a pit of despair or you go through an abusive kind of relationship or you have a crisis and I wondered is is it going to take a kind of widespread rock bottom for society to have a grand awakening is this what we're going through now that people are talking about the great reset or whatever are we all going to come out much more awake or are we just going to go back to how we were before when this, you know, when we can get outside again? You know, I think that's something we don't know, but many of us hope that this is what we're going through. Mm. And uh, I do think the world is going to be different when we come back out into it. And hopefully, hopefully the suffering that we've all gone through the fact, I mean, obviously we're not going through it equally in, and some people are suffering and some people aren't and some people are losing their homes and their businesses and other people are making money and you know it's not all equal but i do hope that there can be more of a sense of uh connection and caring about each other because i think that's innate in us and we don't you know in most countries we don't have governments that really manifest that caring um so we have to find it, uh, we have to find it in our hearts and each other. But I do think that the fact that the culture is waking up to systemic racism, for example, structural institutionalized racism, at least in our country, to me, this is a sign of hope, even though, let me tell you, it's inconvenient. 
in an organization. You know, we have to change things. And we have some, some of the people who've had power have to let go of power, like me. I've had, you know, I founded an organization and I need to let go and make room for younger people and a more diverse group of people. And I want to do that. Um, but it's also not easy. I can say I want to. And then I notice that when a decision gets made that I don't agree with, I want to jump back in and assert my power. Um, so it's, it's not easy to make these changes, but we are, we are making them. And that gives me cause for great hope. I mean, you, you talked about um, the light and, you know, being the light. And it reminds me of that. Is it Amanda Gorman? The, um, the youth poet laureate yeah. who spoke the hill we climb and it's just those last few lines of that poem you know the new dawn blooms as we free it um and that just makes me think of you know sharon salzberg again you know every day we're born again um yes to, you know to be better and to be yes you know have that integrity that we we so desire the rest of the world to have and you know and, and she says there is always light if only we're brave enough to see it if only we're brave enough to be it and, you know, that's, I that's guess that's, beautiful. you know, we're looking outside for the new normal, but I, I think, you know, we need to find the strength to let go of all that anger and resentment and that victim mentality and, and you know, nurture this light inside us and share it. Absolutely. It doesn't serve us. It's funny you mentioned Sharon, because I was just talking to her last night and, and I said to her, you know, uh, we were talking about a difficult situation that we're both aware of. And I said, it just reminds me of your core meditation instruction, which is begin again, yeah. you know, and start over. It's never too late to start over. And watching Amanda Gorman, this really young person, be up there in, in, in this sort of solemn, fantastic, magnificent occasion, um, no matter how you may feel politically, it's a magnificent occasion, the peaceful transfer of power. I felt, I almost had this feeling, because, you know, I'm really older, and I thought, I really can die now, and not that I want to, but look, the future is in good hands. That's how I felt listening to her. It was so inspiring. Yeah. Um, you know, you like poetry, Chris. I, can I read you a poem that I a friend that. I wrote? Yeah. Okay. This friend, um, her name is Catherine Klatsker, and I actually, uh, I read this poem at a conference on compassion yesterday because Catherine and I, for 10 years, we taught um, retreats together that we called, it was a day that we planned for healthcare workers, but especially the people who work, uh, it started out, she was a lifelong nurse at the, um, the pediatric intensive care unit at Children's Hospital of Los Angeles. So it started out as being an offering for people who work at the bedside of critically ill and dying children. We later expanded to include adults because of the demand, but it started out that way. And it was meant to be a place where people could learn stress reduction uh, tools because of the repeated bereavements and the constant busyness that didn't ever really allow them time to grieve their losses of the children they take care of. And some of them for many, many years, they would take care of them. And you can't really go home from work and tell your family at the dinner table who died on the unit that day, you know, it's, you can't talk about it um, really. And so we taught 
these tools of how to be present with your own suffering and not have to just get busy with technical stuff by the bedside or numb out and just becomes kind of robotic and get through your day kind of thing. Um, so we taught mindfulness, we taught loving kindness, we provided chances for people to really share and listen to each other. And, and it was, it, it changed many things. It even changed practices at some of the hospitals, which I think many hospitals now uh, actually give a doctor, a nurse, a respiratory therapist, the whole team, um, a chance to just spend maybe one minute by the bedside of the person who has just passed away, just acknowledging that person's life. Um, anyway, Catherine um, is retired now and she wrote this poem, which I think, you know, it's, it's, it's perfect for this time of the pandemic. It's called The View Out My Window. The worst thing is she died alone as so many do these days, isolated from all who love her. In pandemic, we are globally unprepared for this novel anguish. There's nothing outside in the gray evening, nothing outside my window to distract me from the memories of dying patients. How we used to use our lunch breaks to hold and rock those who had no families so they would not feel abandoned. I jolt up in the night, sleepless again, I look up at a sky ablaze, scattered starlight undimmed by light pollution for once. And I remember how we were and what we did all those years in intensive care. I recall singing to patients as their pallor deepened, their breath agonal, watching for signs of pain, wishing they were not separated from all who loved them, realizing they were not. She did not die alone. This I know. A nurse held her hand. A nurse spoke steadily and softly to her. A nurse told her of those who love her and longed to be at her side. This I know as I fall into the arms of sleep. And I think this is a poem about some of what you were talking about what we can do for and with each other. When somebody is dying, it turns out the best thing you can do is be unafraid and calm and simply sit with them and be with them. And how do we get like that? You know, by facing our internal, our fears, our own mortality, you know, the, the things that scare us so that we can do that. So I think this, our whole conversation is really kind of a, um, an encouragement yeah. for us and for everybody to take those few moments to acknowledge our life, to just step back, to receive the beauty of the trees, the calm of the earth. Um, I like the ducks paddling around. <laughs> I, like, I like to walk over to this lagoon and, um, I'm not far from the San Francisco Bay and I can walk there and when I go late, you know, almost at night, most people are indoors for dinner. So it's a safer time to be out um, and, uh, you know, to receive these, I would call them supports for 
our pandemic life and our life in these troubled times. Um, and I wish for you and for me and for everybody that we just remember that we can do this. Yeah. And we can, we can seek out the, the joyful things that really make life what it's supposed to be. You know, it's, it's, that's where, that's where life is. It's in the, the things that resonate with you, the ducks and the, the holding people's hands. And, you know, it's, it's not in the, life isn't in the, the anger and the, the hatred and the division. It's in the joy and the poetry and the, those special moments of real, real presence, I suppose. Yeah. I think that's what it is. It's presence. And the good news is we're, we all have this. This is yeah. not something you have to go buy or meditate for 30 years to get, you know, anytime we're just a little bit self-aware or mindful about ourselves, we're able to be present. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, you pointed out before we, we started the conversation, the flowers behind you. And I mean, it could be just something like that. Just have a, a plant on your desk or a piece of art or a favorite book or even a piece of music or something like that. Just bring yourself into this moment of just being and being alive and, you know, yeah, that's wonderful. I, I don't really know where to go from there. So I think that's, that's really Maybe wonderful. we've gone where we needed to go. <laughs> yeah, I think so as well. And I think that's what this is all about. We're, we're already where we need to be. And sometimes it's just a matter of stopping and recognizing that, you know, stop being so busy all the time and rushing around and, you know, and being distracted, I think. So, so yeah. yeah I really, I love listening to you. You really have a beautiful um, take on things, Chris. No, thank you. No, I, well, I, I think it, a lot of it comes from conversations like this. I, I get so much, th this is my version of, of going and watching the ducks paddling around. You know, I, I get <laughs> a lot of hope, I think, from just knowing there are people out there who, it's almost like people like you and people who are doing this kind of compassionate work and this thoughtful uh, philosophical work and helping people come to terms with what life is all about. It's almost like you've got, you've got our backs, you know, you've got that you, you're looking out for everybody. And I, I really appreciate that. Um, just to know that it's, you know, there, there are people who care about how we feel and that's, you know, really something that means a lot to me. So I'm, I'm very grateful for that. Thank you. And I'm grateful for what you're doing, you know, sharing these conversations that uplift you with the world. Well, I hope that um, anyone who listens to them, you know, finds some comfort in them anyway. So, um, but on, on that note, I, I will probably um, leave you there. I'm sure you're very busy and you've got the rest of your day ahead. Um, but thank you so much for your time today and for your, for your reassuring words as well. Thank you, Chris. Thanks a lot. Have a lovely day. You too. Well, that was a wonderful conversation uh, with Trudy Goodman, who was very generous in her time and her wisdom. And I feel a real sense of hope after that, that chat, and I hope you do too. So I'm very grateful for Trudy uh, to spare those minutes to just talk about how we can live more peaceful and compassionate lives. If you want to find out more about Trudy, you can go onto her website at trudygoodman.com and I'll put that link in the um, show notes as well, which will be on my blog at www.chrisbrock.uk slash podcast. And you can find out all about the other podcasts that I've had um, on there as well, as well as on all the other platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, Radio Public, wherever you get your podcasts from. 
We've got some great conversations coming up. I'll be speaking to Owen LaCorre soon about uh, natural movement and how uh, learning to move in a much more natural way can help us get closer to ourselves. Uh, I'll have a repeat guest. Uh, Chris Manning is coming back on the this show to talk about uh, mindfulness. And um, Andy Wang is going to be a guest talking about raising your vibration. I'll also be speaking to Oliver Berkman, the, the writer, uh, talking about practical spirituality, I, I guess. He's not really a spiritual guy, but he, uh, he talks a lot about um, being more fulfilled in your life and kind of things you can do to live a much more uh, rewarding and compelling and frictionless life, if you like. Um, and so that's a conversation I'm really looking forward to and I hope you are too. Thank you so much for your time today. Wherever you get this podcast, don't forget to subscribe, uh, rate us, give us a little review. And I hope that you will come back again for the next conversation uh, of the Being Better podcast with me, Chris Brock. Like I said, find out uh, more about what I write about and my books and that kind of stuff on my website. That's chrisbrock.uk. Until the next time, have a good one. Thank you.